Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Don't worry if you haven't yet showered this morning, because coming up this half hour, we're going to find out what it means to take a bath of light in Times Square. Esteemed scholar and author Marshall Berman is with us this morning to talk about his latest book, On the Town, 100 Years of Spectacle in Times Square. Interspersed throughout our interview, we'll hear from some people on the street in Times Square, sharing their thoughts about the area that's been called the crossroads of the world. And later in the show, we'll explore the evolution of Broadway theaters. We'll talk to the curator of a new exhibit on view at the Municipal Arts Society called Times Square Theaters, A New Century, A New Style. It's Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. Today's show is all about Times Square. Thanks for joining us. Joining us this morning is Marshall Berman. He is the author of On the Town, 100 Years of Spectacle in Times Square. Marshall, thanks so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. This is by far not a history lesson of Times Square. No, though there's a lot of history in it. One of the things that I'm arguing is that since the square became what it is in about just about 100 years ago, when the IRT and the BMT opened up and both of their terminals were in the square and it created the immediately the biggest crowds in the city. Um, people kept saying the biggest crowds anywhere, which you know might well be true. I haven't been to Tokyo but, I mean, they say that uh, the, the, the central terminal square is supposed to be quite something there. But on the other hand, Japanese, whom I've met here, like Times Square much better, in part because um, they say the crowd is the whole world, whereas the, Tokyo is not. The Japanese played a big part in bringing Times Square back after it pretty much crumbled in the 1970s. In the 70s, yeah. One of the things that happened was that American corporations stopped, pretty much stopped advertising on the big billboard spaces, and for a year or two, uh, they were dark. You talk in the book how the invention of the light bulb turned Times Square around. 1879. I mean, it's interesting. It's one of the dates that really matters. In Europe, they immediately saw the industrial uses of electricity and built enormous plants and changed the whole structure of generating power. But in America, this took longer and it took until about after 18, until after the turn of the century, 1900. But for the about 20 years, the main use of electricity seems to have been for spectacles, for fairs, for carnivals, for theaters, and by and by for carnival spaces like Times Square. In the 90s, the square was already saturated with signs, but they weren't electric. Um, so the, the next great leap around 1899 was what, what, what they called the fire signs, and Theodore Dreiser might have coined this. Dreiser was then a journalist and sort of cultural reviewer and spent most of his time there then. And the fire signs are basically the form that we still have now. We learn in your book that the word for these signs is spectacular. The genre of spectacular existed already before electricity, but electricity created gave them a tremendous spurt. In the early part of the century, there was a lot of controversy because in some parts of the city, the property owners didn't want signs at all and felt that it diminished their property values. On Fifth Avenue, they were particularly angry about them. And a consensus was evolved in the 1900s in which Electric signs were kept out of most of the city, on the other hand, encouraged to concentrate in the square. And the most famous one was they had the Bloom Petticoat, which I talk about, which had a very, it seems like, complicated electric program. Heather Bloom Petticoat's silk's only rival. I haven't been able to find the image of this anywhere. 
uh, but people talked about it a lot. It was like a crowd stopper. Um, a woman wearing, you know, traditional pre-World War One long skirt and petticoat. And so what would happen was there would be a storm, a windstorm, wind and rain, and her petticoat would blow up around her uh, so that you'd get to see more of her body than you'd ever else would see outside her outside her bedroom. And then it would blow up against her, and people would apparently, and Broadway would go, ooh, uh, and then the storm would stop, and she it would return to its normal contours, and then it would start again. Uh, so, I mean, it was also, I, I mean, it seems to have been an early kind of computer display. People responded to that. I don't know whether as much as to the portrayal of the woman and the undress in public. But the undress in public was is also a Times Square motif, both in signs and in people on the street. We've seen quite a few people in their underwear in Times Square through the years on big billboards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's happened now is the, the I mean, the, there's a lot of censorship on the signs in its current incarnation. The attempt is to keep Times Square a family space. Uh, on the other hand, the women themselves are very sexy and very adventurous in their dress. So it's like if you look at the signs, if you go to Times Square and look at the signs, you can, especially if you know something about the history of the place, and you look at today's signs and you compare them with yesterday's or the day before, you feel very um, dispirited. On the other hand, if you compare them with the crowd, the phrase I use in the book is, about the signs is in the last, since the 90s, they've had various boards that are basically trying to keep the square square. And they've succeeded in doing so if you look up. On the other hand, if you look on the ground and look at the people there, it's probably the most exciting crowds in the square's history. Yeah, what do you think of today's Times Square? Some people call it the disnified Times Square. Look at the ground. Look at the ground. Look at the people on the ground. It's the most multinational and most cultural, multicultural ever. There are emancipated women in it and women who are doing jobs but who are doing jobs in which... They don't have to hide themselves. I mean, women in the media, women in showbiz, in which self-display is at least part of the job. Isn't that, though, what Times Square has been for women in history, a place where they can go out and be who they are? I think it certainly was a model for that. I know it was like that for my mother and her sister and their friends who grew up in Brooklyn and the Bronx, but worked near the square if they could and stayed out. And when my mother and father... um, met, they would just stay out after work and not go back to the Bronx or Brooklyn until very late. You write in your book that your strongest and your sweetest memories are also the ones that hurt most, your memories of Times Square. How come? Well, my father, um, as I said, met my mother and courted her in Times Square, but always worked around there within a couple of blocks. He died in 1955 when I was not quite 15. They had this little company um, that was basically just the two of them, and they were jobbers in the interstices of the garment industry. My first year in high school, I could use the subways on my own and go to Manhattan on my own. I grew up in the Bronx, and I would meet him at Lindy's, and we'd walk around, and we had a game in which you would take people in the crowd and you'd guess where they were going, and we'd follow them for a couple of blocks and try to see if if one of us won. So like we would get, you know, this looks like a jazz crowd. I bet these people are going to the theater. I bet they're going to eat out. Where where will they eat? You know, does this look like a child's crowd or a Lindy's crowd? 
So it was a thrill. And my father said, the first time I was right, hey, Sonny, you can read the street like I can. And I couldn't, I mean, because he could read the street like Balzac, like Emil Zola. Uh, you know, but it was a thrill. It was a form of growing up to be able to read the street and to read the people. Even after your father's passing, though, you and your family would we go would back to Times go, Square. Yeah, we would go on Sundays. We would go to a show, and then we'd eat out. And then my mother would say, um, now we're going to take a bath of light. And what that meant was we would just walk around, you know, in the few blocks in the center under the neon signs. We'd point point out signs, point out people. The way my mother said, just bask in it. Um, just let it wash over you. And then after a while, we'd go home. Oh, and in the 60s, I got into an argument with my Aunt Ida, my mother's sister, who was saying, you don't need drugs, you, not just me, but my whole generation, you just have to go to Times Square. Uh, and we were in the square, and she said, you know, isn't this enough of a high for you? Uh, but it, that was the kind of high that it was. It hit you like a drug. We're talking with Marshall Berman. We'll get back to his thoughts on Times Square in just a minute. But first, let's head down to the square itself. We recently spoke to visitors about what the square means to them. I'm Forrest Myers, and um, I live in Damascus, Pennsylvania, and Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I, I love Times Square, and I, I, I've, I've watched it for uh, almost 40 years get bigger and, and better, and I love all the signs here. You know what? New York was set up by the Dutch a few hundred years ago to make money, and that's what this city does, and I'm fine with that. You know, advertising in this one area is, is great because it becomes something else. It becomes almost like an artwork in itself. Uh, Rene is my name, and Mateluna is my last name. I'm from Chile, South America. I am Guillermo Bamke, my last name. I'm from Chile also, South America. It has his uh, good things and bad things. I study astronomy, so for me, all the lights are not good at all. <laughs> the difference in Chile is that you can see the stars. You can't see that here, but you have another kind of light, you know. I'm Toby Levin. I'm from Brooklyn. I work uh, right in Toys R Us. If I didn't work here, I wouldn't be here. I really dislike it. The tourists are annoying, and it is clearly an area of town that is set up just for them, and not it's just not a fun place to be if you're not here to see the Disneyland that is this part of New York. I think there's a difference between the spectacle of a sex shop and the spectacle of The Lion King or Beauty and the Beast. And while they can coexist, I think Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King are kind of... I mean, like, admittedly, I wasn't here when, when Times Square was gross like it used to be, but I think there was something a little bit more honest about that than... Um, whitewashed windows and MTV. You're listening to Cityscape, and this morning we're talking with Marshall Berman, author of On the Town, 100 Years of Spectacle in Times Square. In his book, he writes about the way in which women have behaved within the square. In its early days, it was an empowering place for women where they could be on display in a way that was more assertive than pretty much anywhere else in the city. At some point, though, that all changed and Times Square became a much seedier and dangerous place. This is what Berman refers to as 42nd Street's sex change. I'm not sure exactly when this began, and historians argue about it. Um, it might have been um, around World War II. I mean, this was the street that had the Ziegfeld Follies, and the Follies were something that were very friendly to women. I mean, they featured women, but also were very welcome to women, and women could there was something women could go to alone. Uh, at a time when there weren't wasn't there weren't that many things where women would go alone, 
that was one of the nice things about the follies. My mother described ducking into it in her lunch hour. And in fact, the movie 42nd Street, 1933, celebrates this kind of ambience. It has Ruby Keeler dancing on the roof of a taxi, uh, tap dancing on the roof, and this became one of the emblems of Times Square, of New York, of the Jazz Age, and you've seen this picture, even if you don't know that you have. She's wearing a top hat and has a cane, and she's tap dancing, and you you only see at the end of the routine that it's on a taxi, and then she jumps down, and she's surrounded by the traffic and the crowd and the and the electricity. But within a few years, it seems like this street became masculinized. It became almost entirely male. In a way, it went through a kind of devolution. I mean, one of the features of modernization everywhere in the world has become the the sexes do things together. And anti-modernization movements in the Middle East and, and everywhere else, one of the things that they try to do is separate the sexes. Their concept of degeneracy has a lot to do with just men and women just being together, walking together, working together, talking to each other. And the people who were against places like Times Square and who were against city life uh, and who were against conversation make these connections very clearly. Okay, and in the movie Taxi Driver, this is memorialized. Robert De Niro gets a date, uh, finally asks Sybil Shepherd out, but the only place he knows to take her is um, a pornograph- pornographic um, cinema on 42nd Street because he's so encased in both in the street and in his own world. And it's a sort of boundary space, a liminal space. It's actually where the new, I think the new Victory Children's Theater is now. But it's it's entirely pornographic and entirely male. And she says, what am I doing here? And rushes out. And he doesn't understand the misunderstanding. That moment pinpoints what had happened to the street. Another one of the quintessential portrayals you write about is from an earlier era. And it's a picture. There's a sailor and there's a nurse. But we're not even really sure who these people actually are. There were a lot of contenders for this throne because, I mean, there were a million or more people in the square. This was the day of the Japanese surrender in August 1945 of this um, immortal picture of the sailor and the nurse grabbing each other, surrounded by the building, surrounded by thousands of other people, including people who were smiling at them and and encouraging them. In the um, PBS History of New York, directed by Rick Burns, there's... um, pictures of that day, you know, at least a couple of minutes of newsreel footage, it was striking how many, like, strangers grabbed each other and danced with each other and hugged and kissed each other. That famous photo was captured by Alfred Eisenstadt. Right, right. But there was another one that was of the same couple from a slightly different angle that was on the cover of the Times. Why has that photo become so iconic? Well, the idea of the good war and a situation in which all civilians understood that the sailors were protect soldiers and sailors were protecting them and the soldiers and sailors didn't have any doubt of their mission unlike Korea unlike Vietnam I won't even begin to talk about the Gulf War but they knew they were doing the right thing and it gave them a sense of a kind of confidence and the sense that they knew that they could represent the whole country and random civilians you know were nice to them and loved them people of the world war 2 generation often talk about it as The Good War. In fact, this is the title of a memoir book by Stens Terkel. And, I mean, there was a lot of nostalgia in that generation for a good war. 
And that's one reason why the picture has is so powerful. Because, I mean, we've been through a number of bad wars since that good war. But, you know, in some ways, even people like myself who are very uh, have a very jaundiced view of imperial wars can understand, can feel the nostalgia for that kind of war. But it's also important to understand how that nostalgia is exploited. I mean, part of growing up is understanding your own nostalgia and how people are going to use it against you. You write in your book that you are suspicious of the discourse of nostalgia. I think so much of the blood and horror of the 20th century is, grows out of nostalgia, out of nostalgic pictures of a pure, a simple, pure world without the outsiders, without the Jews, without the immigrants, without these, without those. And this picture of the, the, the simple small town, the picket fence, which, of course, was essential to the development of suburbia and, you know, the business of real estate, you know, is in part a business of nostalgia. And in many, many of the businesses that are rooted in New York depend on yearning for anti-New Yorks and for places that have no public space at all, which consist only of these idyllic streets in which people never encounter each other. In many ways, today, Times Square is a place for kids. We see kids gathering there all the time, especially with MTV studios there and folks lining up to be on that TRL program. But there was a time when kids and minorities were largely absent from the square. Yeah, I think this is true. I, I think I was part of the first generation of when kids started hanging around in the late 50s. There's a great picture in your book where you show kids and minorities gathered there. You say it's really the first real sense of that in the square. When was that exactly? 54, 55. There's a great photo by William Klein of New Year's Eve, and it's a bunch of Latin kids, uh, 12, 14, maybe less, you know, who could be coming from the East Bronx or from Union City or from any number of Latin um, enclaves, and this might be their first trip into Manhattan. And they look, they look like they're very, they're scared to be there, but at the same time, they're not going home. We'll continue our talk with Marshall Berman in a minute, but let's visit Times Square one more time. We caught up with both tourists and locals to get their thoughts. Oh, well, I'm Shalin Patel. I'm uh, working for the Comic Strip Live right now, trying to sell some tickets. I come out here about five, six times a week. Tourists, they usually have that uh, kind of curious look to them. They're, uh, they like to stop sometimes, and, and other times they don't understand what you're saying. So they're like a child, like, what? What's going on here? Uh, whereas New Yorkers, they know what's up, and um, they're just going to straight ignore you. I mean, they could be going to work, you know, or they had enough of the pitches. <laughs> out here, everything's just blaring you know you got your bright tv screens led signs all the everything's moving and it's it's fun but uh it's definitely not it's definitely not a, a sane kind of living to me <laughs> terrence robert charles from houston texas well i'm just getting out work so you know to walk around town before it get too cold oh it's awesome it's awesome the industrial age all these businesses a lot of money a lot of opportunity, a lot of people, so it's, it's a great energy. It's kind of overwhelming, but, you know, it's all, that's life. You, you put up with things. Check it. My name is Emperor Abdul-Malik. That's who I am. I'm from Queens, Flushing, New York. Just to let you know where it is, where I'm from, that's how it goes down. 
Well, Times Square is a very lucrative place if you're dealing with anything to do with business, promotion, marketing. And I'm marketing and promotion my business right now. Nerve Rackers Records. Nerve Rackers Records. Flushing Queens, New York. I'm Emperor, and that's what it's here. That's what I'm here for. Basically, I tell the difference. I can see it in your eyes, right? It's a certain kind of glare. The tourists look like they're stumbled and bewildered. And when they come in, I just pull them right in because I can see that. It's like a fishing hook. I do bass fishing. I do bluefish and stuff. So I see the tourists right away. New Yorkers, they come through. They got the tough face. They rough. You know, they don't want to buy anything, so I give it to them for 10 But all, all the time whenever I see somebody that's from over the seas I give it to him for $20 that's how I can tell the difference right in their eyes I can see it in their eyes I can see the glare Giuliani came and he talking about you know quality of life and he changed it a little bit he put up the big signs it looks like Disney World it's the lights the ambiance you get caught up in it but the change don't forget the change is external it's not internal the internal is still the same as New York Times Square is the epitome of New York you're listening to Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. I'm George Bolarki. Let's get back to our discussion with Marshall Berman about the significance of Times Square. In recent years, the square has become more and more modernized, and some say sanitized. While many bemoan these developments, Berman still sees the square as vital to the fabric of New York City. Times Square, of course, has had many lives through the years, another life after 9-11, and you experienced that firsthand, too. My last day of field work, which was about three years ago, uh, I was just walking around and sketching the people and making notes of the signs, and I was in on 42nd Street and 7th Avenue you know, in a very central location, and it was in front of the Reuters building, and a guard came and said, you can't stand here. And I said, you don't own the street. And he said, if you don't leave, you'll be physically removed. And I felt terrible. I felt like I ought to stay here and make a stand. My son's birthday party was in an hour uptown. But we have to, I mean, I think, I'm not worried like many of my friends are that giving money to corporations to build buildings is going to destroy the square, but we have to fight for the street. We can't, we have to make it clear that this isn't a corporate park. They don't own the street. It's nice that they're coming, but being in a city means coexisting with other people. The essential feature point of being here is learning to share space and seeing uh, how this enriches you, how it makes you more than you are. Earlier you talked about how it is important to really show your colors while you're in Times Square, not to blend in as part of the crowd. I mean, one of the things that the square has always been is a kind of warehouse of people and ways to look. I mean, I know my parents, especially my mother, learned from this, but I can see in retrospect how I learned also. I can see the particular combination of ways that I, of looks that I've created for myself, and I can see now in ways that I couldn't see 20, 30 years ago where they were coming from. And to some extent, everybody's got to make this synthesis for themselves. That's part of growing up. But Times Square gives you a particularly rich selection of possibilities. And in some ways, it's richer than ever now because the crowd is, as I say, more varied than ever, more races, more colors than ever, coming from more countries than ever. And I mean, that's true of America, too, but there aren't that many spaces where you can, in America where you can see it. Some people but, don't like to be in Times Square when it's so crowded, but when it's not crowded, it's really not the same place. Right. I mean, the crowd is what you go for. And in some ways, it's a drag to be in the crowd, but it's also it's also a bath of light. It's also like a drug, like 
like a way of shooting up, and it's legal, and you can get there on the subway. And your book is On the Town. You take us there as well. 100 Years of Spectacle in Times Square. Marshall Berman, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure to be here. Marshall Berman is a professor of political science at the City College of New York and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. His latest book is On the Town, 100 Years of Spectacle in Times Square. One of the hallmarks of Times Square has been the long-standing theater scene. A current exhibition looks back at the history of theaters in the area and at where Times Square theaters are headed. We spoke with the exhibit's curator. Joining us now on the phone is Craig Morrison. Craig is the curator of a new exhibit called Times Square Theaters, A New Century, A New Style. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you for calling. The theaters in your exhibit date back to the turn of the century. What style are the square's early theaters constructed in? Well, the the earliest uh, of them, uh, which dates back to 1900, is what we would call Victorian. Now, it's uh, I'm sure when they built it, they had some idea of it being French Renaissance or you know Italian Baroque or something like that. We look at it now and realize that uh, whoever designed it was not a, a scholar or a historian, although he was a very innovative designer. Were these theaters constructed with upper classes in mind? Well, yeah, they were they were constructed with upper classes in mind, but also with lower classes, because uh, when you think back to those days, there was nothing else to do, and everybody from the top of the social spectrum to the bottom could find entertainment only in going to the theater. There was no, no alternative. There was no television. There were no movies. There were no uh, alternatives to uh, going and all having to be accommodated in the same place at the same time. When the movies came around, did that influence the development of theaters in Times Square? Well, yeah. Uh, when the movies came around, uh, we talked before about the various social classes mixing in the same building, or, or not mixing in the same building, but being accommodated in the same building. When the movies came along, they tended to draw away the the, the people who occupied the cheap seats. And the first feature-length movie was introduced in 1912. By about 1918, Broadway theaters uh, were were being built without second balconies. The second balcony is where the low-priced seats had been. Uh, drama got better and better. Drama became serious literature rather than uh, the, the sort of pot-boiler melodramas that had been in place to, to appeal to the, to the whole spectrum of society. So, yeah, the, the movies uh, vastly changed both the character of drama and the character of the theaters themselves. Did the Depression and or World War II stunt the development of theaters in Times Square? Well, they stunted it. They, they stopped it. Uh, I think the last uh, thing that we would consider to be a Broadway theater of that earlier age was built about 1928. The great movie palaces, all of which are gone now on Broadway, were, were built in 1924, 25 through about 1928. Then nothing happened at all until uh, the 1980s. How do you think Times Square theaters will evolve in the future? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, we've had several audiences. The audience of today is basically not a New York audience at all, uh, but an audience of people who visit from around the country. Uh, they come here uh, not looking necessarily for uh, high literary content in their dramas and challenging things. They want to hear great musicals, and they want to see spectacular effects. So we all know about helicopters landing on the stage and chandeliers falling and all this type of thing. 
Where this is going to go, uh, who knows? Uh, perhaps there'll be more variety of theaters built, some that specifically accommodate uh, uh, the, the spectacle-loving audience as opposed to the drama-loving audience. And the product in them will probably evolve, too, in that same way. How many theaters does your exhibit showcase? Uh, our exhibit showcases actually 13 theaters uh, incorporating the 12 buildings. The Schubert and Booth are all in the same building, which was a uh, planning technique that the owners used to accommodate both a large and a small auditorium in the same w- within the same infrastructure. And how is the exhibit set up? Uh, it, it's set up chronologically. We start with the earliest theater, the Republic, now called the New Victory. Uh, and then we show the various uh, uh, steps in the architectural ev- evolution of these places. The New Amsterdam was a sea change in architecture, a beautiful Art Nouveau building, so different from the uh, Victorian uh, things that have preceded it. We talk about the Ritz. Now it's called the Walter Kerr, beautifully restored place, the last of the second balcony theaters. And we conclude uh, with the Marquis Theater, uh, part of the latter part of the 20th century, and also look into the future, uh, where we're going to have both restored theaters, and there are a couple of them in the show, the Biltmore and, and the American Airlines Theater, and uh, one that is just being built now behind a historic facade uh, that's going to be uh, uh, going to incorporate the uh, techniques of what they call green architecture, environmentally uh, sustainable, energy-saving, conservation-minded design. The exhibit is Times Square Theaters, A New Century, A New Style. It is on view at the Municipal Arts Society through March 7th. Craig Morrison, thanks so much. Thank you. Craig Morrison is the curator of Times Square Theaters, A New Century, A New Style. For more information about the exhibit, check out ttmnyc.org. That's all for this week's Cityscape. Thanks for joining us, and perhaps we've inspired you to take a visit to Times Square. Remember, you can find this and other shows in the Cityscape archives at the newly redesigned wfuv.org, where you can also find out how to podcast this program. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend.